that God does a lot of like work in our lives and in our hearts with other people and with conflict. And it's interesting that most of us, we hate, we don't like conflict. And if you do, there's probably something a little bit wrong with you. Right? You just like to just fight people and quarrel and argue with them. It's just not a healthy thing. And probably you're just by yourself a lot. Nobody wants to really hang out with you. And so it's interesting that through conflict that God just, you know, we kind of see like what we're made of, how we respond to the conflict and how we respond to just the situation. And um, the interesting thing is, is that God, like I prayed before, the, um, before we talk here, God uses anyone, whether they love him or they don't. And he'll speak and he'll just work through people around us in all kinds of conflict, all kinds of situations. And I think it would be a really big mistake for us to at times to be like, well, God definitely can't speak through that person because they don't follow God, you know, they're not faithful, or they're whatever, fill in the blank. Man, you better believe God's going to speak through anybody at any time. And I have found it just personally interesting in my own life how many times that hard-hitting, um, heart wrenching truth has been spoken into my life from people that are not Christians. They may have delivered it in a really bad way, super unloving, maybe sarcastic, really rude, bad timing. But at the root, somewhere of what they were saying, I've learned at an early age, a spirit just spoke it to my heart to really to seek after, to search after truth, regardless of how it's packaged and delivered. So that's something I'm grateful for the Lord to put on my heart at early age that I've just, I've always been like that, so just at a young age, just searching and looking for truth, no matter who's talking. It's like, is there any, are they completely way off with what they're saying? Or is there something there, Lord, that I should pay attention to? And so hopefully we can become a people that we react to the truth, you know, instead of maybe just the delivery. Because the delivery can <laughs> How many of you, whenever you want to speak something, especially something of substance and value that's important that you want to get across, you always do that the perfect and right way at the right time? Yeah, so put your hand. So Keith, of course, he does that. But for the rest of us, right, we know how it goes and the struggle that's behind it. Because typically when there is conflict, sometimes it's just the fast stuff that happens right away and you're just caught off guard and you know how to handle it. And there's a lot of times where it's just with people where it's just, it's a thing that's sort of building and you want to talk about and you want to address, but you don't know how to do it. And you know if you do, it's going to be like a problem. And uh, You know, it just gets exhausting. So we're going to see a little bit of that today. So we, I think there's some things we can pull out from some of that. Um, and then there's some other interesting, I think, tidbits for us that could be really helpful. So we t- ready to take a look? All right, First Samuel 25. Let's get in. Let's look at it. Lord's going to speak to our hearts. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. We'll stop there for a second. So Samuel dies. That's, that's the book, right? For Samuel? Right? That's what we're reading about. Um, and we're not quite sure exactly who wrote it. Samuel may have wrote part of it, but in the book, it actually talks about like right now when he dies, and the book is going to continue. So somebody had a hand in helping to write the rest of it. Um, and a lot of people aren't sure exactly who did it, but thank God that they did. 
And so what happens is we're coming to a close, we're coming to a transition on a leader's life. Samuel, what a leader. This was a man who was birthed in miraculous prayer. His mom, Hannah, wasn't supposed to have any kids. And she was in a relationship, a polygamous relationship, where the other woman, she was having kids. And she also wasn't a nice woman. And she would constantly rub it in Hannah's face. And so Hannah, just heartbroken, comes before the Lord, pouring herself out just in tears. And God hears her prayer, and she gets not only just one child, she actually gets several other children. But her first one, is Samuel. And she says, Lord, if you give me this child, I'm going to just give him over to you. you have him, he'll serve you all the days of his life. And sure enough, that's what happened. So he's birthed in this miraculous prayer. And then he's really sustained as an excellent and awesome leader throughout the nation through an incredible devotion. There is never a doubt about this man who he served and about what direction and what kind of vision he had for his life and for the nation. Any time that they as a nation came at crossroads, like, what do we do here? Do we engage in battle here? Do we um, give in over here? Do we do this over here? He was always known to go to the Lord first in prayer and in fasting and say, God, what are we doing here? I, I don't quite know. Should we do this? Should we not? Are you going to be with us if we do it? Father, what do we do? And that's, that's like how he was known. It's a really solid and good leader. So he's birthed in miraculous prayer. Um, then he's sustained in devotion. And then what happens kind of at the end of his life, uh, he kind of gets rejected as leader and as, not quite a king, but as leader, as a prophet. He gets rejected by his own people as he gets older. And the reason was because he had sons, and they didn't quite turn out like dad did, for whatever reason. And maybe he was a bad father, you know, I don't know, we don't have really a lot of good records of it, Um, but for whatever the reason is, maybe he was a good dad, and his kids, as parents know, he could be good, bad, whatever, they just go directions. And we got to stay in faith and in prayer for our kids, about our kids, and believe in a God that's good. And he's going to answer those prayers. And he will come through and be faithful. Maybe not when they're young, but maybe when they're old. But it's very much the parent's job to stay committed in faithful prayer for those children and not give in and not budge and hold on to the promises. So, his kids didn't turn out that way. And so the people come to him and say, hey, listen, you know what? We've been doing this sort of leader prophet leader thing for a nation, they said, listen, we're not exactly thrilled with it. We don't have a police force. We don't have an army. Uh, we don't have just sort of like a governing body. How many people know, like, if you didn't have any health care, you had no police, um, you had no structure in place, any governing authority at all, that wouldn't make a lot of people feel good because it's like, who's supposed to do those things? And then you're responsible for all of that. So in other words, your security is completely out the window. And if you're not sure how you feel about it, get rid of all your health care, get rid of all your retirement, get rid of everything that would really set you up to feel more comfortable later and you get an idea of where they're coming from. 
So they're like, you know what? We, we don't like this. Anytime there's a problem, we have to go to God first and pray and fast. Do you understand what I'm saying? They weren't in love with that, tor- that type of relationship, that kind of lifestyle. To our flesh, it's like not natural. So when you feel that tension in life, when you want to follow after the Lord, like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, like that's what's going on. And so they say, you know what? We, we don't like that. What we do want is we want a king, like all of the nations around us. We want a king. And Samuel, I'm, his heart's breaking. He's like, guys, listen, this is not what the Lord wants to do right now. He just doesn't want to do it. And they said, here's what they said. They said, we don't care. We don't want to hear it. This is what we want. Every nation that has kings, they're doing well. And they have structure in place, and people have roles, and they have responsibilities. It's better. It looks better. The world has it better right now. And Samuel says, nah, it's just not the time. And when we talked about this message, I forget, it was like chapter 8 or chapter 9. You know, we titled that message, Don't Confuse Me with the Facts. And they're at the place where there's like, listen, don't confuse me with the facts. This is just what I want, so just give me what I want. And it's a dangerous place when we come to God like that. Because how many people know he's not our little genie that just operates like that? He's king of kings, lord of lords. And so you have this thing going on in Samuel's life, and then now he passes away. And I appreciate the fact, number one, that people are coming and they're paying him respects and honoring him. Because not too long ago did they say, you know what, we don't really want to follow what you're saying. We want to do our own thing. But he passes away. They all come together. They pay him their respects. And then, here's the interesting thing I just want you to think about. And then we're moving on past, what are we in, verse 2 here? <laughs> verse 1. I promise you, I promise you we're going to move on. The interesting thing also is that God had a plan that went beyond Samuel. It wasn't just tied to Samuel. Like the hope of Israel and the hope for the nation wasn't just tied to one man. Or one woman. And nor is it ever. Say, is it ever? It's never tied to it like that. There's a greater narrative. There's a greater story. Where God is in control. And he is doing what only he can do in a completely sovereign way. Setting things up. Setting people in places. Even using evil. That's kind of weird. You can just shut the mic down. That'd be good. Blame it on Keith. Okay. We're good then. I don't know. So, even using evil for what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish, no matter what it is, right, that's what God does. So I love the fact that even though a chapter is like over, there's a new chapter beginning in the new man that God is going to choose to use and build and work through is no longer Samuel, it is David, right? It's David. And you got to think if you're David, you know you're kind of sad at this point in time because this is the one man that anointed you, that was on your side, and now he's gone, and he's leaving. So now we can get past verse 1. So it says, Then David moved down into the desert of Maon, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. So David leaves um, the area that he was in. He kind of goes away. I would assume 
that he's probably pretty sad. He couldn't really turn up to the, we'll call it funeral, because everybody that wants to kill him is going to be there. So he kind of has to be with his about 600 men he has now and just sort of grieve there and just kind of be heartbroken. And you know how we get like when death happens, right? But the good news is, again, even though a chapter ended, a new chapter is beginning. So bottom line, hope is never lost even in death. And I think that's important for us to like, remember and keep in mind. I know I'm not living forever, at least not here. I mean, I'm living forever. I'm just changing zip codes. And for those that believe in the Lord, it's the same deal. So there is this man, right, very rich. He had 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Here's what that means. One, uh, he's wealthy, he's rich, he had tons of property. 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. If you see like 20, that's a lot. He's got 1,000 of this, 3,000 of that, and it says that he's shearing. So what that means is, this is like the end of the year, so it's kind of like harvest time, like Thanksgiving, where the bounty is in, and you're like kind of putting it all together and figuring out how much you have, bringing it all in. It's a bountiful time of year. And so when they're shearing, um, they're getting all the wool, and uh, they're getting all the milk also from the sheep. They're just bringing it all together. So it's kind of like he's counting it all up, bringing all the stuff in. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So this is interesting, right? So you got this rich guy who in, I like the New King James Version better, says that he was mean and that he was harsh. Maybe it just doesn't like my pocket. Try the back pocket. Says that he was mean and that he was harsh. And then, and he's rich. He's mean, he's harsh, and he's rich. So, just because people are rich obviously doesn't mean they're nice people, right? Definitely not. And then you have this beautiful woman who is, they described her as wise and intelligent. And Nabal, his name, right, I had to look it up here, his name means stupid, bless you, stupid, foolish, and ungodly. That's what his name means. What are his parents thinking? Like, that doesn't, what are you doing to your child? And then her name means father rejoices, gives joy. How did these two end up together? Well, she probably, bless you, wouldn't have picked them. And certainly in those days, you have arranged marriages. And so consider the fact of Abigail's parents saying, hey, listen, there's this guy Nabal over here. He's got kind of a bad attitude, but the guy's wealthy. It's probably a pretty good setup for our daughter. Maybe he'll get better over time. The reality is he never did. And so now you have this beautiful, and it's interesting, she's so beautiful that in the Bible, the same exact word that's in Hebrew here is only used with two other women. Rachel, Jacob's wife in the Old Testament, and also Esther in the Old Testament. You only got three where the Bible says just beautiful women. Right? And she's one of them. 
And so you have just this, wow, amazing woman, inside and out. And she's with this guy, Nabal, right? And it's probably because he had money and he was wealthy. And sometimes, like, we think, and they thought, hey, maybe on the inside he's not that great, but he's got a lot of stuff. Like, he's financially stable, he's secure. We never have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from, where they're going to live, and how it's going to work out. But on the flip side of that, you never know how he's going to treat your daughter and what life is going to be like for her. So he was very rich, but he was also very poor. You could be very rich with possessions and with finances, but if your character is evil and rotten, and you're trying to take advantage of people and run over people and swindle people and thinking you're better than other people. How many people know, like, you're really like a pretty poor person? No matter how many things you have. And so this is the type of man that comes on the scene. So why is this all happening? Okay, verse 4. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Then David's men arrived. They gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. So here's what happened. I don't know if you've ever thought, as as we've been reading through this, David and his men, they were in the wilderness, moving from place to place, from cave to desert to cave to woods, to, he's like not in the most ideal place. And so I read that, and I'm like, how did these guys have money? <laughs> like, how could they get things? The king is hunting them. Um, everybody, most towns, are really going to give him up because there's a king's protection and a king's reward if they do. So it's like, how are they making money? Like, what are they doing? And so what they're doing is, David started with 400, God brings another 200, he's got 600 men with him. And so what they would do is they'd have these vast countrysides of places where they were at. And you'd have these marauders, these like, uh, we'll call them pirates, you know, because everybody knows pirates, pirates is like a big thing, right? Pirates, but of the land, of these little tribes, of the Philistines, of the Moabites, of all these neighboring lands. And you don't have police forces necessarily in town that no trespassing. So what you would do is you would hire some people that could protect you, that could watch over your 3,000, what do you say, sheep or goats? 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. How do you watch all that? Especially if you have so much land. And you have some quote-unquote pirates and marauders coming through. Hey, we'll snatch up 50 here. We'll go snag up there. We'll just take what we need and keep moving. So there's a market for people that could be battle-tested and could protect and also have some level of responsibility. 
And if you got a name like David, who killed Goliath, you're kind of like a well-known guy. But of course, this thing with Saul is all very confusing. So David has a company that he really formed on his own of protecting people. And so this guy Nabal has him employed. Say, hey, listen, take care of my property, take care of my sheep. Whatever point in time, we'll square up. So there's like a bill, and their services have been rendered. And so David says, hey, listen, oh, they're shearing now? Oh, listen, all the money came in. All the sheep are there. They're shearing right now. They got all their food. David says, well, listen, now's a good time to go up. He sends them. He tells the guys, hey, listen, hey, blessings to you, blessings to your family. Hope everybody's doing great. So glad that we could help and serve you. Hey, listen, uh, David, like all of us, we're ready to like receive, you know, whatever we have agreed upon, whatever you want to give us at this point in time. We know you guys are sharing, so, and that's what he does. He sends these messengers. So Nabal, the honest man that he is, probably has a really nice response for them, right? Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away uh, from masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? (laughs) So, in his character that's poor, He's like, listen, I'm not paying up. David, he's on the run. Saul's coming after him. Obviously a fugitive. I don't really know what his deal is. I'm not paying him anything. I have all this stuff, and I'm trying to keep all this stuff. And he's been protecting it. Guess what? I'm still not paying. How many people like to be in business with people that don't pay? The answer is nobody. So how is David going to handle this? Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, and nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So David says, really, that's what he said. Rise up. Get the swords, let's go. We're going to go have a talk. I, I wish that the story kind of ended right there because now David's going to take a step into some territory where he really shouldn't. And we've known David the past couple of chapters as being this man that's like patient, that prays, that seeks the Lord's wisdom and counsel. I mean, Saul, his enemy, was right in front of him in Oz in the last chapter. And his entire just army behind him said, hey, God delivered him into your hands. Now's the time. Take him. And David's like, no. He 
He's the Lord's anointed. I can't. He's very poised and patient. And we see this other side of this passionate man not looking so good, which we're going to see in a minute. And Abigail, right, took note of what's happening. It says, Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sails of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. And you got it. So Abigail, this woman, right, beautiful inside and out, she's pretty smart. She's like, oh my, what did this guy do? Some women know about that that have been married to sometimes when men just do things. What did they do? And we're going to talk more about her reaction, how she handled things next week, because she's super wise in how she handled the situation and how she did not completely trash and dishonor and uh, really throw her husband under the bus. She didn't do it. And she got way far above the results she thought she was going to get. And we'll talk more about that next week. This is only part one. So she gets all the stuff together, which kind of lets you know, if she could put that many things together that quickly, there's a lot around. Nabal just wasn't willing to give anything up. He's a rich and wealthy guy, but sometimes what happens with riches and wealth, you don't give it up too easily. You just don't. It starts to own you. You don't own it. So she's heading out to him. And you've got to think, David and his men, they're fired up. Like, they probably have Rocky music going on in their iPad. Like, they are like, how could he ever, you know, and they're heading out there. And then you see, like, this beautiful woman, like, coming towards, and they're like, what the, you know, like, where's Nabal? We're coming after Nabal. We ain't coming after her. We're coming after Nabal, and we're going to deal with him and talk with him. So, like, once she gets all the things together, number two, she's like, I'm not messing around. Like, I'm going to go, I can't even talk to him right now. I'm going to go meet him first and talk face to face. And then so she comes out, and David's men are, they're probably like very perplexed about this whole thing. So David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him. This is the part. But I feel like David, he just, what are you thinking? So his business deal obviously didn't go according to plan. He was taken advantage of. And so now, here's the deal, right? I think pressure sometimes is like helpful. Sometimes you need to put pressure in certain situations on certain people. It's like, hey, like this, this is now, especially in business, this is not what we agreed to. And you have this firm, assertive situation. If there's a contract involved, then you bring in the contract. That creates pressure. And you say, hey, listen, like if kind of we don't do this, then we have this agreed upon. You know, that feels like pressure, right? It's pressure. David's looking to come in. I am going to not only kill him, every male in his household. What? This was not Mr. I won't touch the Lord's anointed last chapter. 
Nowhere do we read of him fasting and praying about what to do with this situation. There's no psalm recorded about how am I going to handle Nabal? I want to do it in a way that honors you, Lord. So he's headed like down a very dangerous road. He's a very passionate man, obviously. But it's interesting how if you change the people, if you just change the people in the situation, the sin can almost like come out. Like if this was Saul, we probably would have had four different psalms about like how he's going to do it. And he would probably would have handled it a lot differently. But because it's Nabal, it's like, well, I'm not going to treat him like that. And it's interesting how if like the situation has changed and the people are changed, people's reactions, the way we interact and deal with certain people, that also changes. If you're talking to the president of your company about something, you might treat them a little bit differently than like your coworker. Right? It changes. And we're going to pick up next week on how Abigail responds because I think she's brilliant. She does it in a super humble way. And like I mentioned before, the results, like what happens because of it, is incredible. But I just want to give us three takeaways, practical things that I think can help us. All right? Here's number one. Number one is hopefully we can become a people where we can remain hopeful in any situation, even if it's death. Samuel died and set the scene, and I think it might be a little naive to think that Samuel's death didn't maybe play into David's like quick, harsh reaction. The only people that really counted on him and that believed in him, that anointed him, was Samuel. And now he's gone. And I'm sure that hurt his heart at least a little bit. And maybe, can't prove it, but maybe it may have played into this very uncharacteristic David type of response. I'm going to kill every male in the household. What the heck? And so, David, you want to be known for that now? We want David to be king, the guy that if you cross him, he kills everyone in your family. Would have been tragic. So hopefully we can be a people. Listen, death is not far away from any of us, right? No matter the situation. No guarantee I'm going to make a home today. It's just not. It's not silly or sad for me to think like that. It's just reality. And listen, if we haven't learned anything in this day and age in 2017, it's that reality. It's very uncomfortable and it makes us squirm. But it's the reality. At any point in time, our dear brothers and sisters in Texas, you'd be at church. It doesn't mean we're safe from anything. Somebody comes in the door... And I think very much the response for us is we need to be a people and God expects us. The Spirit's work inside of us. It creates us to be a compassionate people. Where we desire healing and want to come bring healing. And we want to come bring help. It just creates a response inside of us. But at the same time, the Spirit should also create us to be a people, man, where we are just hopeful. To where when we know, when we see something, we experience something, that is not the sum total of all that God is doing. That he is able to take and change and transform any situation. Whether it's a tragic loss of life, like we experienced from our own brothers and sisters last Sunday, 
Or it's like a family member that we love and we've had a chance to be around for a while. Or that they've been ripped away quickly. Our calling, our calling is to be a people where we know how to love others really well in the process of the mourning and the grieving and the hurting, number one. Number two, it's very much our call to be a hope-filled people. All of life is not just tied into Jared, into Julie, into whoever. Our whole family does not just reside in that one person. There's a greater narrative at work. And he's got people in places. He's got resources in places. He has ways to do things we can't even imagine. And some of those most amazing testimonies and stories I've ever heard have come from devastating, horrible tragedy. I wanted to give you a couple of passages, too, just to also encourage your heart on that front. John 11, you don't have to turn there. You can just write it down. Two passages. John 11, 25 through 26 says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Powerful words from Jesus himself. I am... Excuse me, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is asking him. It's like, man, listen. Death definitely hurts. But for the Christ follower, for the Christian, like I said before, we just change zip codes and area codes. Death doesn't win, ultimately. Somebody has beat it. And if you wanted to maybe have one more on that, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. I won't read that one now, but I'll leave that one with you. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. So first takeaway, remain hopeful in death. Number two, a good man is better than a rich man. A good man is better than a rich man. A good woman is better than a rich woman. Nabal had all this stuff, super wealthy, you know what I'm saying? But he couldn't appreciate the amazing woman that he had, number one. And he couldn't rightfully handle all the wealth and riches that he had, number two. Couldn't let it go. Like, just pay the man up. Created a wall. Everybody was safe. They were protected. They did it all the right way. They just honored you. It's like, man, I ain't paying him nothing. I'm going to try and get out of paying him. In fact, what's he going to do? Right, so... A good man, a good woman, is better than a rich man, rich woman. And some of the single ladies and single people in here, right, you want to keep that, there's no more arranged marriages. And you don't just want to find a man that's got a lot of stuff. You want to find a man that's really rich in all the right ways. That's the man that's going to take care of you. And even when there isn't any, Right? Still have a man by your side leading the household saying, I, I don't know, but I know how to go to the one that does. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stand up to it. I'm not going to crawl in a corner somewhere. And the interesting also, thing also, too, is that, you know, and Abigail, you know, she, 
she had to stay in her situation, and some women like are still married to Nabal's. You know, it's just like, what is the deal? And God's like instruction to us in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, is that for any man or woman still in a situation like that, where it's just so difficult on the other end with the other spouse, the calling is to stay in that situation as you've been called to. And to pray for, to serve, to show them and become the love of God. That's why this whole marriage thing is so serious. You have to really prayerfully and think through that stuff. If you're in a position to want to do that for somebody else, what if they just turn? It's a lot to think about, right? So let me try and give you some helps. I came across this this week about uh, being a good man, good woman. Four S's. You ready? Real fast. I won't do them long. Number one is they step up. Good men, good women, they step up. They take initiative. They see an action. They say, okay, let's get this done. They don't wait to see, like, well, how, what's everybody else going to do? Like, I'll do it if you do it. You know, like, they step up to the plate. There's a need. There's something going on. I can help contribute. I'm in. I'll, take the, I, I, I'll get them together. I've never done it before, but we got to get after this. we got to do it. That's what a good man, good woman does. They step up. They take initiative. Number two. Um, again, I, I read this this week somewhere. They speak out. They speak out. They boldly just proclaim like what the truth is and what the situation is. They don't passively sit by and let conversations and things and life happens without just kind of saying anything. Sometimes you've got to just speak up about stuff. Some people speak up way too much, you know. But in the day and age of social media, it's like, shut up, you know, like, come on. <laughs> so, like, you've got to learn, like, when to speak up so it's received, you know what I'm saying? But, like, there's a line there, and, like, some... You know, some guys, you know, especially, like, they won't say anything. Like, their wives, they just run the whole show. The women just run it. And a lot of times, the wives don't make it easy. They're actually pretty comfortable with it. Be like, you know what? I've been running the whole show. I'm going to keep running the whole show. That's the way you've been doing it. And it's like, you're killing your husband, number one. And number two, you're just sabotaging that marriage. Well, what if we don't get anywhere? What if they never step up to the plate? Well, then drown with your husband. Honor him every step of the way. I'm telling you this. That's what the Lord says. I'm not saying you like, you know, you let your husband just abuse you and take advantage. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm saying there's a place of honor and like submission. And I know that's the S word nobody likes to hear, but it's for all of us. We're going to talk more about that next week. So when they step up to, they speak out, right? They have a voice. They say something. Three, they stand strong. If you get attacked, criticized, or challenged, hopefully you're able to stay strong. Stay firm in it. Stay firm in it. Instead of wiggling around and trying to like, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I don't. It's like, no, like, like Christmas coming up. This, this one always comes up, and it might come up with you. And I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying it's a conversation that comes up. Santa Claus is coming. There's all kinds of conversations I always get in with other parents and other people about Santa Claus, you know, and all that. If God has given you a particular view on Santa Claus or your money or um, how you're going to celebrate Thanksgiving or whatever it is, if God has given you a vision for it and he's put some convictions in your heart, stand strong on them. Don't be apologetic about it. 
It's like I'll call, this, this is like what rich men and women do. You know what I'm saying? They, they stand up for things. They take initiative. They draw lines. They say, this is what we're about. This is what we do. Last S. Stay humble. Stay humble. You might be strong on some things, but you've got to stay humble and teachable. That's where you're not arrogant. You're like, well, we don't do it because of this. Okay, that's sort of staying strong, but that's like really rude to the person you're talking with. But you like talk like with them through. Well, we, like we've thought about this and we come to this conclusion, you know, like what do you think? Like we like what we're doing, but, like, but what do you do? And how do you handle this? And how do you do that? There's a humble way to do things. There's a humble way to stay strong. And for a lot of guys, like, you know, we need to prayerfully consider exactly what that looks like and how you do that. How do you stay humble but stay strong and assertive? And what does that look like? Because that changes from situation to situation and from person to person. All right. Remain hopeful in death. A good man, good woman is better than a rich one. Last one. Um, People in our lives, they should have different levels of access, different levels of accessibility. So like my relationship with Eric, you know, it's going to be different than like just some other people I have in life. Right? My relationship with Brian is going to be different than other people in life. So people have different levels of access, right? Depending on who they are and how well you know them, all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, people should get kind of the same general attitude. People have different levels of access, but they should get the same kind of general attitude. So like, obviously Nabal got a totally different David attitude than Saul got. That's not the direction we want to be headed. We want to treat people with a certain overall general attitude where I'm treating the president over here and the person over here that I just met on the street doesn't have anything like the same way. You're getting the same Jared regardless of the situation. You're getting the same Michael just regardless. And that's really the place where God calls us to be, where there's really no favoritism involved. It's just like, depending upon your pedigree and like your salary and who you're around, who you know, like I, I kind of like do something like this for you. And then for you over here, it's like, ah, uh, like you're kind of more annoying than the other person, so I kind of give you this over here. So like, God's calling us to be a place where we give off the same type of general attitude of Jesus Christ that lives within us. And to help make that a little more clear, in Philippians 2, I'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about, and then we're going to close, close up with communion. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, here's what it says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the same type of general attitude to where, you know what? 
the dominant theme in my life is Jesus Christ and the Spirit's working. I'm trying to make sure you receive some of that. I'm just obedient to like what the Lord's going to do. And I just want to make sure that people I get around, they receive just some of what God is doing in my life and doing in my heart. Regardless of the situation. And there's certainly some situations where you get wronged. And that doesn't mean that you just let it go. There's still a place for truth, and there's still a place for personal confrontation. But it's done in such a different way. And we should have a clue as to what that looks like. And if we don't know, we have to really seek the Lord on that. And so if there are issues that, personal conflict, just issues, I really hope that God is probing probing and putting on your heart to really seek his heart and his voice first in prayer before you try and handle any confrontation with anybody. And let me also say this. I've also come to experience this just on my own. Just because I've been conscious of it, I've prayed about it, I've been conscious of the situation, I've prayed about the situation, now I want to confront and talk with them, I still have messed it up. It's like... Wow, I thought about it, I prayed about it, and it still came out awful. I thought that would have been different. And we have to be humble and like realize that. Because sometimes, some people in some situations are like, well, I've prayed about it, and I've asked God, and this is what it is. And it's like, man, you're kind of really missing this humility piece. And when you do that, the people on the other end receiving... It's not going too good. You're coming off actually pretty arrogant. You might think you're doing the right thing, and maybe your intentions are good, but you're coming off as really arrogant, and it's not going to be received well. So I just want to make sure, like, God wants us to be a people to handle things differently. And it doesn't mean we won't get in fights. It doesn't mean that everything is going to end, and hey, we all agree, praise the Lord, brother. It doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean it. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up on Abigail and the wise response right, that she has and what she's going to do. So can a couple people maybe come up? We've got these elements here. We're going to pass these out. Just hold on to them. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Mike. Jesus, we thank you for setting a model for us as far as what it 
what it, you owned everything, completely rich in every way. And you showed us how to be rich from the inside, Lord. How to just be fully and completely surrendered to a life that your Father had set in place. A way that your Father had said, this is the way we have to do things. This is what we need to do. So Jesus, I just thank you for I'll never really totally understand all of the sacrifice, um, all of the love, uh, just all of the discipline on your end. All that you did, Lord, for our sakes. I don't know if we'll ever understand the depth of it on this side. Maybe even in eternity, I don't know. But God, we just thank you for it. And Father, we read your word. And we're certainly encouraged and challenged. We know that death doesn't reign supreme, but sometimes it's just, when people pass away and things happen, Lord, it just hurts our hearts, Lord, and we can get lost in the confusion if we don't keep you at the center. And Father, we don't want to treat people differently because of what we think we might get from them. And so, Father, we can only really do these things, Lord, and carry this stuff out with your strength, Lord. Only you can really make us so that way, even if we accumulate things, because it's possible, Lord, that we can also be uh, rich on the outside and rich on the inside. And sometimes it's just so hard because our hearts get attached to things and to stuff in an unhealthy way. And I just thank you in your great wisdom that a lot of times you guard us from that and you withhold things from us and you only give us what we need. But I thank you that you're growing us to be a people, Lord, where we're just not attached to things and to stuff. So I know you're already doing a good work in our lives because your spirit is at work doing it. I just pray that we would just be willing partners to embrace the process of what you're doing. And position ourselves regularly to hear your voice and to know who you are. So we can speak up and stand out and be strong, Lord. And so is there anybody here today um, that you've never actually uh, given your life over to Jesus Christ? Do you want him to be full leader of your life And you want to tell them this morning, God, I want to give my life over to you. I never have before, but I know it's right. I don't understand what I might need for my next steps, but I want to. Um, Is there anybody here this morning that would like to do that, never have before? Anybody here that has never done that? Okay, because I want to make sure that we have the opportunity. Church church is definitely the place to do that. So, Not the only place, but a good place. Okay, all right. So, Father, I just thank you for the work you're doing in our midst, Lord. And Father, we just humbly, humbly, Lord, come before you. Knowing that you're the King of kings, Lord of lords. We know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Lord. And Father, you saved us. So we can actually come with some confidence, Lord. 
Because we're your children, God. And we can call you Father. I thank you for the way you've always prepared life for us. How you continue to fight our battles, Lord. How you continue to be behind the scenes to protect us and watch over us. And Father, we lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Texas, Lord. And it happens all throughout the globe, Father. We don't even know, just in places, Lord. It's just people get taken advantage of, Lord, purely because of their faith. They get harassed and evil done to them just because of what they believe, Lord. And so we ask for protection on them, Lord. As you taught us to pray, protect them from the evil one. And Father, I pray, Lord, that when our hearts are moved and grieved, Lord, that we wouldn't just be able to quickly move past. I pray that there would be something inside of us where we just pray, Lord. We just really labor in prayer. And so we ask, Lord, for a healing on that pastor, Lord, and his family lost his daughter, Father. Almost 30 people, Lord, just gone in the congregation, God. We pray for those families, Lord, the surrounding churches. We ask for your love and your perspective to just be released on that area around those people. And Father, if there's a greater part that we can play here, Lord, other than praying, I know you'll make that clear to our hearts as we fellowship with you. But we certainly lift up our brothers and sisters to your throne, Lord. So it says the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take and we eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we take and we drink. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do every time we do communion. We're basically just saying in action that we associate ourselves with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of our life. And so that's like the symbol of doing it. That's why if somebody has never really given their life over Jesus Christ, it's kind of pointless to really do communion. And that's why I ask before communion just to make sure. All right, so let's stand. We're going to close in prayer. Um, Rob, do you mind uh, coming up praying for us?